What The Health Tech listeners, I'm Rhiannon Hoyes. This is the podcast where we tackle some of the trending topics, ideas and best practice in health and social care. This week we have a special episode. Since launching the podcast, we've always asked our guests their What The Health Tech moment. And over the last 50 plus episodes, we've heard some amazing stories from the truly weird and wonderful to emotional and life-changing. These stories are just a snippet of the amazing people involved in health and social care, and we'd like to share a few of these with you today. So sit back and enjoy. There was a a guy called Ian in Nottingham, and he was a big guy in his 60s, and he had a thing called um, PSP, um, and it's something super nuclear palsy. Basically, he, he... lost the ability to communicate. So he's almost like trapped in there. And he was a lovely bloke. He loved his Nottingham Forest. Loved his Nottingham Forest. And he really connected with me. So he couldn't talk. But every time he saw me, he would grab my hands and really, really shake my hands as if to say, we're all right now, me and you. Because he was, he was a big Ian and I was a big Ian. And he, we, he just kind of, there was a connection. It was a lovely thing. And... I took him up in helicopter. I took him up in helicopter. I got a load of them. Yeah, I, I asked a load of them. I said, what do you want to do? And they all said, I'd love to go up in helicopter. I said, I've got a mate who lives in Eskrig who's got helicopters. I'm going to ask the question. So I asked Steve a question. He says, I'll fly down to Nottingham. I'll sort that. And we'll take him up. And it was amazing. And then at the end, he just... He just grabbed Steve's hand, just shook it, and he just went, awesome, really quiet. Now, Steve, and he died not not long later. It was Christmas, and I went down with a guitar to do some a Christmassy sing-along. And his daughter was there. She was about to go shopping in Nottingham. And she said, oh, Ian. I said, oh, I'm so pleased you're here. She went, um... I found some things. I mean, I got talking to my mum about um, about my dad, and they they met at a Paul, at a Paul Young concert, right? I'm thinking Paul Young, okay. And um, I was going to be singing "Away in a Manger" and "Silent Night" and all this sort of thing and "Jingle Bells," and I just went, I know wherever I lay my hat as a song, and I know every time you go away, but I don't know it on guitar. So I went, right, down the corridor, out the way. So I'm playing, so I'm, you know, I'm thinking, right, well, that's a G. I think that's an E minor, G, and then a D, and then it goes to a C, and that's it. That's, that's, that's wherever I lay my hand. And I thought, how oh, does every time you go away? So I did. So anyway, I went back, and I started singing. And he hadn't said anything for ages. Now, if there's any way with this podcast, you can add some extra bit. I can give you the footage that shows this moment. And so we started singing every time you go away. And he started joining in really quietly. And at the end, he does this bit. He goes, in this croaky voice, goes, every time you go away, you take a piece of me. And he grabbed his own shirt with you oh and and then his daughter came in from the side because we videoed this thing she came in from the side 
in absolute bits and was just so excited. She went, I can't believe that. I can't believe it. And honestly, I just could have gone. I could have gone. It was amazing. It showed that music can cut through the fog. And it's not about music. It's about one person's music. And you can't tell by looking at somebody what songs are going to ignite them. And that was the most beautiful, beautiful, moving thing. And I'll take that to the grave. I actually, then, I officiated Ian's funeral. I did it all. So the family just said, we want you to do it. I think I, I get given some real strange phone calls, me. You know, really. It's not, you know, oh, by the way, can you just do me dad's uh, funeral? Oh, go on, Ian. And so there you go. That was amazing. It blew me socks off and it showed me the power of music and the power of people's history. Yeah. And even though, even though you think somebody's locked out, they can maybe just still have a, a foot in the door. This was probably like four, maybe five years ago. Um, so I was working for um, Brighter Kind, which is essentially a, mm. one of the three brands within Four Seasons. So there's three brands in there, uh, all kind of like specialised in different areas of health and social care. But at the time I was working for Brighter Kind. Um, and at the core of like, everything that Brighter Kind did was its core values and its culture. Um, and that was just, it was embedded everywhere in terms of what they do. And one of the, the sayings that was in, was in Brighter Kind was love every day. And, and that saying will be forever sort of like etched in my head because I heard it pretty much every other day. Uh, whether it was, you know, care staff sort of like saying it to residents, residents saying it back to care staff. <laughs> So it's just nice that it's kind of like that whole positive yeah. sort of like mentality and things. Yeah. So one of the other sort of like areas of Brighter Kind was uh, they had like signature elements. So parts of the business that kind of, I suppose, were their yeah. unique selling point and then and the nice parts of the business. And one of them was called uh, creating magic moments. So, and that can kind of come in, mm. you know, any shape or size or whatever. But this particular story was about uh, a lady called Muriel, uh, who was based, who was a resident uh, at a care home in Chester called, I think it was Crabwell Hall. So M Muriel's magic moment was a wish that she had, believe it or not, to ride in a hot air balloon. <laughs> okay. Now, <laughs> really random. <laughs> yeah. Now, this lady was soon to be turning 100. Oh, really? Um, and the kind of like wish stem back from a conversation that she'd had with an older brother years ago <laughs> who flew in a hot air balloon and it kind of must have just stuck in her memory sort of like over the years um yeah. and she basically had a wish that that's what she wanted to do i mean mm. i don't think i'd go in a hot air balloon now you know at 25 years old um <laughs> i can't imagine going up there you know when you're 100 but anyway that's what she wanted oh, that yeah. was her wish yeah. um and the care home made that happen oh. Um, so yeah, one particular morning, um, they, uh, the home manager at the time accompanied the, uh, accompanied Muriel to like the location. She had no idea where she was going. <laughs> it was very early morning. So the idea was, is that she was going to go on this, uh, oh. flight, um, for like an early morning flight yeah. where she would basically be up in the sky to see the sunrise. And that's what <laughs> happened now that there's a, there's an article online somewhere yeah. and there's a picture that was taken where this is kind of like pre-flight and like her face is just like unbelievable. Like you've never seen somebody yeah. so happy. Oh. And it's obviously, you know, when you were talking about, obviously thinking about how passionate people are about working in the sector, it's kind of like those moments, I suppose. Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, after that, you know, the home took it sort of like one step further. When she came back to the care mm. home, there was a party for her um, where like family and stuff like that were there. Uh, obviously all the other residents, all the staff and stuff. And they let off a hundred balloons for her. <laughs> so yeah, just like, you know, just a really sort of That's like touching, so yeah. touching moment. So yeah, that kind of like always sticks in the back of my head as sort of like yeah. a, a wonderful moment that happened. And there's, there's, there'll be many, many more of them up and yeah. down the country, not just obviously in Four Seasons and Bratakine, but no doubt all over the mm. country. But that's a particular one that sticks out for me. I have hundreds. And I was <laughs> thinking about this, um, you know, I, what, what would be ethical to share um, as well as what would be interesting to hear. And I'd just yeah. like to, I've chosen one story because it, I guess for me, I've absolutely loved every moment of my NHS career. And I, I really do think it's a, um, it's a fabulous career. Whatever we hear about it in the press, I really do recommend working for the NHS. Yeah. So I was working in paediatrics in the early 90s. And in paediatrics, actually, you would be shocked by how badly children and their parents were treated relative to today. Parents were not welcome. I mean, it was, you know, they were given a bed, a chair by the bed if their child was really ill. You know, it was, it, there was no sort of facilities for parents and the, they were not uh, really that welcome. And children were expected to behave perfectly. And this was, this was a real chat. So there was no accommodation, no adaptation to a child's own particular needs. And, this meant that in the radiotherapy department of the hospital where I was working, children who were having radiotherapy would be anaesthetized every single day for their six weeks of um, cancer treatment. Because, because the machines for radiotherapy are so enormous and the devices to hold the limb or the, or the head still, you know, were quite scary. Children mm. were naturally, you know, uh, fearful and distressed and would cry. So the choice was um, made to anaesthetize them every single day. And you can imagine what a, the level of disruption that had to their family life, their schooling, their nutrition. I mean, having to starve for a general anaesthetic and the cost to the hospital. I showed that, and I took it one patient at a time, I showed that if you played with children in the radiotherapy room with teddies and dolls and allowed them to get a sense of how the machine worked and where mum and dad would be standing and you know what it was like for the teddy bear to lie still and then to practice lying still themselves, I showed that children could lie still without any need for any genuine anaesthetic. And Today, that is the standard practice that all, for all paediatric services, you know, there's time now built into treatment plans so that children have a chance to play and to learn at the pace that works for them so they can go through radiotherapy treatment without the need for a general anaesthetic or other, you know, restrictions. No, so fantastic. I'm very proud yeah. of that. The company that you and I used to work for, yeah. I used to do a lot of the technical visits. So yeah. they were server-based um, practices, so all the data was held locally and so on. 
And um, when we were upgrading to um, the web version mm. of the product, um, I went out just to check all the kit was suitable. And I said to the lady at reception, um, I need to have a look at your server. And she must have been in her late 70s. Yeah. So really lovely, purple rinse. <laughs> and she said, oh, come with me, love. I'm going up there to water the plant. I'll show you where it is. <laughs> so we went into the, um, the, the IT room and there was the server in the corner humming away with the plant on top of it. And she was pouring water oh into this busy Lizzie. And I said, actually, we may want to move that plant. And she went, well, I'll leave it there because it's nice and warm. <laughs> so crisis averted, you know. Yeah, so that, that was a strange moment. And one other, let me, let me just, so similar situation. I, I went into the surgery, went to look for the server. Mm. It was in the doctor's room. And I pulled back the curtain and, and a mouse ran out. Oh. From, and he said, oh, he lives in the back of the server. <laughs> oh. And I thought, how weird and wonderful is our NHS? Crikey. Um, <laughs> a number. I mean, I was fortunate enough to, as a CQC inspector, to I think I inspected at over 800 care homes in my time. So I've seen all sorts of, of, of things that are taking place. But I'll tell you one thing that I almost brought me to tears the other week that I saw was, um, you know, I, I, have, I fundamentally believe in, in, in sort of giving positive risk taking, mm. you know, risk taking and risk assessment is usually about stopping people doing things. I'm passionate about positively encouraging people things to do. And that's where technology can, can help us enormously. And um, I saw the other week, a gentleman who, 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 who you know, had quite, a uh, significant uh, level of dementia. Um, but for years, all he'd done is walk round the corner to get a newspaper. As his dementia had progressed, he was unable to do that because the home were quite worried that, you know, that uh, if he went out on his own, he might wander off and they wouldn't know where he was. And secondly, you know, they didn't necessarily have the staff levels to, to go and accompany this person every day. So what they did was find online a pair of shoes that had a GPS tracker in them. <laughs> and this gentleman, and they're a lovely pair of shoes, he loves the shoes. He puts them on every day. He goes out and gets his newspaper and the care staff know exactly where he is. And if he does decide to just take a slightly different route to normal, they are aware of that on their phone, they can track him and, you know, and uh, they can do that. And, and before anybody worries about consent and all that kind of stuff, we did all of that and, uh, and, and the best interests and the family were involved in, in all of that. But how good is that? Yeah, and that perfect. has changed that man's life to yeah, a perfect. simple piece of technology, you know. There are so many, um, but the one that uh, springs to mind is um, so many years ago when I when I owned a care home in in West Yorkshire, uh, one of the um, one of the uh, the trips that we took our residents on, um, we we'd, uh, we hired a uh, a minibus uh, with a driver and and we took our residents uh, to see the Blackpool Illuminations. And uh, there was a, around 10, 10, 11 of uh, residents and, and quite a number of members of staff that mm -hmm. came along to this trip. And we ended up, um, 
getting to, to Blackpool nice and early uh, before before it got dark. And uh, some of these, some of the, some of one or two of these residents had not been to Blackpool for many, many years. And and to see their faces um, uh, and, and the enjoyment that they had uh, by going on this trip, going to a place that they had long forgotten, uh, was really really special. And we ended up having fish and chips at Harry Ramsden's, and it just brought brought back so many memories for them. And it was a really really special thing to do. Uh, you know, it was so many years ago. It was around fifteen twenty years ago. But I still remember that. I remember the faces of the residents and and the joy that it brought them. And it brought us all closer together somehow. It was a real special trip. Really. I, I'll never forget it. It was absolutely amazing. I've had time to think about my, I'm going to call it a light bulb moment because I think if we're very lucky in our lives, we get a few of those. And the one that I'm going to recall is it's my very first training event with Making Families Count. It's the beginning of 2015. I am pretty nervous and I go into a very large room filled with hundreds and hundreds of people that have come to attend our first ever training event, which was face-to-face, of course, back in those days. And I sit somewhere towards the back of the room because I really don't know where to sit. This is all still a foreign land to me. And they show a film of me talking about my son and about my son's death and the aftermath of the death. And as I watch this film, which is pretty peculiar anyway, watching yourself, I realized that almost every single person in that room is silently weeping. They are so moved and I'm astonished. These are senior clinicians. These are people who have seen it, done it and worn the t-shirt with the blood on and they are in bits. And in that moment, I suddenly realize that these people who have seen and done so much have never ever sat down with a family member who has said to them, and it feels like this. And when you did that, it felt like that. When you didn't do this, it felt like this. And this is the effect it's had long-term on me and on my family. And they didn't know that. And that was when I knew that making families count was going to be the rest of my life. I guess I have maybe a a couple. I would say for me the most powerful thing is when we first started seeing people use themia um, in order to start um, identifying symptoms of depression. And we started to see that we could actually pick that up and we could predict like a clinician's opinion, or we could predict what these other questionnaires would say. Um, And I think seeing that in practice kind of was so emotional for me after seeing what happened with my friend. I just kept thinking if she had had this, probably she wouldn't have got to the point she did. And that was just, it was a sad, but it was also a very happy moment because I can't go back and change what happened and I can't help her. Um, but I can help others like her. So I think for me, that was the most important moment. Thanks to all our guests who were featured on this week's special episode. And thank you all for listening. Don't forget to rate and subscribe. And if you have any questions or if you'd like to tell us your what the health tech moment, don't forget to email what the health tech at radarhealthcare.com.